All dogs are specially picked for size and usefulness. Each is trained to do a single job. And remember, they're not pets or mascots. They're soldiers, war dogs. When selecting a breed for a bomb dog, avoid the retriever. I'm Torin Atkinson. Well, chisel my spine. This war elephant is out of control. I'm Kevin Leeson. She bears bear shields by the moat shore. I'm Joe Fulgham, and this is Caustic Soda. Animal warfare, animal warfare, animal warfare, warfare, warfare. Latin. Animale comes, uh, means living being. Being which breathes from anima, breath, soul, a current of air. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I like that. Okay, so animate and animal, animal are mm-hmm. related, of course, yeah. Mm. And war, of course, comes from the Proto-Indo-European wars, meaning to confuse, mix up. Yeah, yeah. What a mix up. What's going <laughs> on? <laughs> So we're talking about mixed up animals. Mixed up animals. Ah. Animals that get mixed up, like chimera. Oh, oh they're all mixed up. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about uh, mules and jackasses. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. there's a bit of a mix up. Yeah. <laughs> Who's fucking who here in this situation? <laughs> Precisely. And of course, traumatophobia is mm-hmm. the fear of injury and the fear of war. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about humans using animals in armed conflict besides oh. as transportation. Oh, I thought okay. we were going with animals at war with humans a la Planet of the Apes. Mm. The entire thing was just going to be humans, humans killing versus shit. versus animals. Yeah, humans versus animals. Or, no, but in war, like organized right. warfare uh, like we see every day out on the streets. The, ra- the rats of Nim mm-hmm. versus... Yeah. Uh, the you mice. Know. Yeah, no, no, the people. So we're not talking about animals that go to war on their own, like baboons and things like that. No. The, those animals that we've heard no. that actually do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be a biological warfare episode for bacteria and viruses and whatnot. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So really we're talking about creatures that, uh, you know, uh, on, on two or four legs that are wandering around. And... That we consider part of the animal kingdom. Okay. Yeah. So no trained millipedes then. Oh, oh millipedes are animals. Okay. Well, you what said, are we talking about you insects? two or four legs. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. insects for sure. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, we have done a horses episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but there's a few things worth mentioning, perhaps, on the horses in Hopefully war. not the movie War Horse, because that was a piece of garbage. A knight's war horse was trained to bite and kick mm-hmm. oh. in medieval times. Huh. And in World War I, eight million horses died. And as a result of gas attacks, the army improvised nose plugs for the horses. Mm-hmm. Was that effective? <laughs> No. Was that just okay. put your fist in it? Like yeah, maybe. a guy standing either side, each one with a fist in the, the nostril? Because they have big nostrils, don't they? Not sure. Or maybe just roll up a towel. <laughs> yes. some toilet paper. Shove some toilet paper in there. Um, they developed gas masks for horses, but many horses confused them for feed bags and destroyed them. Ah, yes. They tried to eat. Right. Okay. right. So you just needed to put feed in there. So instead of destroying the bag, they would just eat the, oh, yeah, the feed. Maybe. Might have gotten maybe. in the way of uh, horsing, though. You're trying to... Ride through a cloud hey, of mustard there's gas. There's no horsing around in war. Mm. Did we talk about Acoustic Kitty on the espionage episode? We did. <laughs> Remember that? The cat that was trained to, that was quote unquote trained. Yeah, that they trained <laughs> for six months and then it like walked across the street and got hit by a car. Oh, yeah. Okay, now yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it lasted for like six seconds. 
So go back to listen to our espionage episode for that story. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's a good one. Trust me, you do not want to miss Acoustic Kitty. And go back to our Bats episode to Mm -hmm. learn about bat bombs. Yes, precisely. And go to our Scorpions episode because we talked about Scorpions put into ceramic jars and tossed over walls at at the enemy. Back in like the uh, Phoenician or uh, Babylonian days. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the 4th century B.C. writer Aeneas Tacticus. You think that's where tactics come from? Maybe. Probably. Maybe this was a stage name. No, maybe oh. they already oh, had yeah. tactics. And he was like, oh, I'm Mr. Tactical. <laughs> Johnny Tactical. Johnny Tactical. That's his Greek superhero name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tacticus. <laughs> he suggested defenders should let wasps and bees into enemy mines and jars of scorpions uh, sometimes fired during early bombardments, bombardment in naval battles. Right. You do not want to get caught with a scorpion on a boat. <laughs> Scorpions do not like to I'm be on boats. I'm of these motherfucking scorpions on these motherfucking, motherfucking boats. boats. Yeah. In World War One, thousands of glowworms were captured in jars to provide illumination in the trenches for reading letters, maps, and intelligence reports. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's a good idea. Instead of, like, burning candle and wax and mm-hmm. whatnot and S- kerosene. Slugs had a less obvious use as an early warning system for mustard gas. The U.S. Army tested a slew of animals, including cows, rats, mice, dogs, cats, guinea pigs, fleas, and flies, but ultimately settled on the garden slug. All the other animals developed pneumonia during testing. It turns out that slugs could detect one particle of mustard gas per per 10 to 12 million particles of air, at which point they'd indicate their discomfort and provide Mm -hmm. ample time for soldiers to don gas masks. The danger point for humans is one particle per 4 million. Okay. So, how does a slug indicate its discomfort? Um, I can only, it's a grumpy look on its face. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say anything. It's maybe, maybe it screams. Screaming uh, slugs. Well, if uh, cartoon slugs Probably just starts me boiling. <laughs> yeah. If cartoon slugs have taught me anything, oh. their eyes are on the ends of the little stalks, and so they could squint their yes, eyes. Yes, that's on true. The stalk eyes. True in real just life squint well. and just go mm, in very yeah. Pixar fashion. They probably pull all over their little. They have because they have the two eyes and then the two other little appendages. They pull yeah. just pull them mm-hmm. right into their body. Like got oh, to guess. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally what a slug's Ooh, voice is. <laughs> all right, so I found it. These slugs would visibly indicate their discomfort by closing their breathing pores and compressing their bodies. Oh, so they they scrunch up and tighten everything. Oh, you become like a oh. diamond, yeah. like a slug diamond. <laughs> a slug diamond. Oh. Well, I've never heard it put quite that way before. As, as yeah, I always thought as a scrunchy slug, as something disgusting. <laughs> Just maybe slightly less disgusting than they were before because they're smaller now. Bees have a long history of being used as meat-seeking missiles. Hives huh? being catapulted at enemy lines or over fortifications, causing them to smash, and the resulting enraged bees stinging anyone close by. Bees featured multiple times in the Third Mithridatic War mm-hmm. between Rome and the kingdom of Pontus. During several sieges, Roman sappers were driven back by swarms of bees released into their tunnels. Oh, so Tacticus actually uh, had mm-hmm. some followers, had some people who yep. uh, went, uh, hey, you know what? This guy's got some great ideas. In the 18th century Battle of the of Alba Greaxa, the Turks, who had succeeded in breaching a wall of the city, found to their dismay that the inhabitants had piled beehives there as a barricade <laughs> and were thus prevented from entering the city. Beehive the, barricade? The wall of beehives. Oh, man. The Berlin Wall would have been completely different if they <laughs> had followed this model. If Westeros Mr. had done Mr. Gorbachev, tear down these wall. Well, keep the honey. <laughs> I like the honey. 
Yeah, I mean, people wouldn't have tried to escape so hard. You know what the the you know what you do when you get a wall of beehives? You send in the bears. Oh uh, yeah, no bother. <laughs> Honey badgers and whatnot. Yep. During World War One, both sides used beehives in the trenches, either as missiles or attaching tripwires to the hives as a booby trap. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you step on a wire and the hive hits you in the head? Maybe. Okay. Well, you step on a wire and it just opens the hive and annoys them. And okay. they go, get that guy. There are also reports of the Viet Cong using hives during the Vietnam War. And on one occasion, what was presumed to be a biological warfare agent turned out, in fact, to be the yellow rain produced by bees during mast defecation flights. Mast defecation flights. So bees would fly over you and defecate on you and it would look like yellow rain? I guess so. I guess I don't know if that was something that the Viet Cong planned. It doesn't sound like something that you can plan. <laughs> Go and mass defecate on those. <laughs> I think this is one of those people. things that just happened, and the VC got blamed. Yeah, scientists think that they do that actually to cool off. All right, so do I. Oh my god, it's so hot in here. I gotta take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel unburdened? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, if you're actually if you were flying, I would buy into that. If you if you if one of your jobs was I did it to on an airplane. Fly, I did it on an airplane. No, there you go. But you're flapping your arms on the airplane. Boy, my arms tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got a rat's call back. Rats. The, the explosive. Ah! <laughs> the explosive rat, also known as a rat bomb. Uh huh. Uh-huh was a weapon developed by the British Special Operations Executive in World War II for use against Germany. A hmm. hundred of the rodents were procured by a Special Operations Executive officer posing as a student needing them for laboratory experiments. Okay. okay. I need some, uh, need some rats. rats. The rats were skinned, mm. oh. filled with plastic explosive, and sewn up. I'm guessing that means they were dead. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I would say so. Yeah. I'm guessing their skins were filled with plastic explosives. Yeah, yeah. And not skin, skin the skin off the rat and then put explosives in that weird in skinless corpse. corpse. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hellraiser style. <laughs> <laughs> the idea was to place a rat among coal beside a boiler. When they were spotted, they would immediately be thrown onto the fire, causing a huge explosion. Interesting. Okay. Because you'd be like, oh, a rat, throw it in there, yeah. I guess that's the disposal method that they used I, at the time. Probably it was a standard if, procedure. If you're, if you're, there's the furnace right there. Yeah. You've got your pile of coal. You're there's a dead coal. rat by the coal. Mm-hmm. Sure, you're gonna throw them in there. Sure, why not? More Un- fuel until the first one explodes. Yeah, yeah. and then things will change. It will work once. Anyway, this was the theory. As uh-huh. one of the SOE files records, this device caused considerable trouble to the enemy, but not quite in the way that it was intended. The Germans intercepted the container of dead rats before they could be used for operational purposes, mm. but all was not lost. According to an SOE report, their discovery had an extraordinary moral effect. The uh-huh. rodents were exhibited at all German military schools, prompting a hunt for hundreds of rats the enemies believed were distributed on the continent. Right. right. So they, they tried one... One ex- experiment a sending a shipment yeah. that got intercepted, and the Germans were like, "They're doing this everywhere." Ah, oh, okay. SOE concluded the trouble caused to them was a much greater success to us than if the rats had actually been used. Right, right, right. Because so the fear this. of the rats caused more damage than the actual. Yeah, rats. because they spent all this time and energy like looking out for explosive right. rats as yeah. opposed to oh. actually dealing with explosive rats. So oh. here's my thought, though. <laughs> so really, it wasn't actually a rat bomb; it was like a rat thought bomb. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my thought, though. 
if you need to put something to put onto a coal pile yeah. that you want somebody to then go, oh, I'm going to throw that into the furnace. Yeah. Why not just make a fake brick of coal that has explosives in it? <laughs> so why very... do you need to capture rats that and is... skin them and stuff the skin with plastic explosives? See, because again, rats are easier to skin than coal. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, who ever I... heard of skinning coal, Joe? Come on. <laughs> It always comes back to like you know somebody has some sort of like freak fetish and somebody rats, wanted to like got, look for an excuse to uh, skin some got rats. Got three hundred dead rats here. Yeah. What can I do with them? <laughs> or maybe that special operations executive officer went in posing as a student, getting all those rats, and was like, "I need them for an experiment." And somebody caught him skinning them, and they're like, "Why did you get all these rats?" Uh, I'm gonna put sulfur in them. It was just his personal little project. He yeah. enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. We're gonna it's a plan. We're gonna put explosives in and kill Germans. I was gonna make a giant rat costume out of rat skins wow now, a rat fur coat that might be too weird a very dalmatians kind of cruella Deville yeah. situation only with rats i'd like to talk about the pdsa dickin medal okay okay is uh, this what you get when you lose your virginity as a male you get the dickin medal yeah this is the highest award an animal can receive during military conflict and as such is often referred to as the animal's victoria cross okay During the Second World War, the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, a British charity founder, Maria Dickin, introduced a special medal specifically for animals in war. Okay. The medal has been awarded 66 times. Wow. The recipients comprise 32 pigeons. (laughs) Oh, they must have puffed their chests up so proudly. (laughs) 29 dogs, Mm -hmm. three horses, Uh and one cat. Suck it, well, cats. Only one cat. <laughs> well, three times to as one, many cats. horses. I'm pretty surprised that even one cat got an award <laughs> yeah. for doing anything. It's, uh, it is surprising that there was a... Uh, it cats cr- are not pulling their weight. It crossed clearly. the street and didn't get hit by a car. Give it a medal! <laughs> <laughs> it was affectionate. Give it a medal. It didn't trap you by rolling over and presenting you its belly. It hissed at a Nazi. That's right. (laughs) Good kitty. You get a dickin' medal. So a few examples. Uh, Dogs. There's Ricky from 1947. This dog was engaged in cleaning the verges of the canal bank at Netterweent, Holland. Mm -hmm. He found all the mines, but during the operation, one of them exploded. Ricky was wounded in the head, but remained calm and kept at work. Oh. Had he become excited, he would have been a danger to the rest of the section working nearby. Oh, wow. Not only that, but he also sniffed 20 fire hydrants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. His job was to find mines, but he also peed on 17 trees. Well, (laughs) the, the big problem and the reason he was so successful was German mines were all shaped like butts. Oh. So the dog was just like, there's one. There's one. Got it. There's one. Mm Mm-hmm. And the one that exploded was shaped like a leg. Yeah. He humped it. Oh. Gander from the Battle of Lai Moon on Hong Kong Island in 1941. Uh Uh-huh. On three documented occasions, Gander, the Newfoundland mascot of the Royal Rifles of Canada, engaged the enemy as his regiment joined the Winnipeg Grenadiers in their courageous defense of the island. Mm Mm-hmm. Named after Gander Newfoundland, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Unless Gander Newfoundland's named after him. Yeah. Twice, Gander's attacks halted the enemy's advance and protected groups of wounded soldiers. In a final act of bravery, the war dog was killed in action, gathering a grenade. Gathering? Oh. Is that another word for fetching? Yes. Uh, maybe. That's exactly what it is. Here, boy. Yeah. Go get it. Go get it. Yeah. Well, how would you want to bet uh, half this story is going untold, where a grenade like, kind of falls near a soldier, and the soldier gives it to him and says, Gander, run! <laughs> well, it's probably like a grenade 
came because the Nazi grenades are had those long stick grenades, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. It came into the trench or whatever. Yeah. The American soldier grabbed, ah, oh, get it out of here, yeah, and then the, the dog went to go and fetch it. It was a Newfie dog. Or, mm. or here's the hey, story. Hey, we can take it. Here's the story they're not telling. Uh, grenade falls past everybody. It's no one's in any danger. They're waiting for it to explode. Gander picks it up, starts bringing it back right. to his owner. No, 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 no. And they had to shoot Gander to keep no, him from right. from <laughs> dropping it at their feet. You're then. totally right. It didn't say it was killed by the grenade. Yeah. It was killed in action, gathering a grenade. Yes. That's right. Oh shit! Shoot it. They only let it gather, not retrieve. Pigeons were used to send messages from resistance fighters and special forces from behind enemy lines, providing mm-hmm. the Allies with much-needed information. They were also used by the Air Force as a means of communication in the event of a crash, ditching, or equipment failure. Okay. G.I. Joe was a pigeon. Okay. In oh. August 1946. Wow. This bird is credited with making the most outstanding flight by a U.S. Army pigeon in World War II making the 20-mile flight from British 10th Army Headquarters in the same number of minutes. It brought a message which arrived just in time to save the lives of at least 100 Allied soldiers from being bombed by their own planes. Oh, oh wow. He got the Dickin Medal. I would say so. As silly as it is, I'm fine with that. Give, 20, that, give that bird a medal. 20 miles in 20 minutes. The medal was made of bird seed, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah no, That's the way he can enjoy it. No, ironically, they uh, they pinned it on him, and he tried to fly away and just, like, crash land and died. <laughs> Too heavy? Yeah. I did find out what happened to this one cat. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Go. Yeah, of course you were interested in what the cat yeah. was up to. Simon served on the Royal Navy sloop HMS Amethyst. Oh, and he was particularly useful because he did not feel like going in the water, so would uh, do everything he could to keep that boat afloat. <laughs> that's, that's right. They got hit by a torpedo, and he jammed himself into the breach. <laughs> in 1949, during the Yangtze incident, he received the Dickin Medal after surviving injuries from a cannon shell, raising morale, and killing off a rat infestation during okay, his service. So we're oh. so right. It gets a fucking medal for living, yeah. not being shitty, and killing rats. rats. Yeah. <laughs> Which it kind of loves. You know what they say? If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's what cats mm. are. Cats are down with the idea of never working a day in their life. Faux I found show. ways to do that without doing what you love. Mm-hmm. Elephants. Ah. The elephant that never forgets. To kill. The first recorded use of elephants in battle dates back to the 4th century BC, where their size was used to terrify the enemy and charge enemy lines, breaking their ranks and allowing the rest of the army to attack. Right. In addition mm-hmm. to trampling over the enemy, they were trained to swing their tusks from side to side to add further injury. In India and Sri Lanka, heavy chains with steel balls in the end were attached to their tusks wow. to increase the effectiveness of this tactic. Wow. Well, in hopes of. I don't know how yeah. well that would work, but totally, you can just imagine like guys going, let's put some balls on here, man. It'll be awesome to swing around and hit people. Like So much war must have started out that way. Some elephants had their natural tusks sawn off midway down and fitted with deadly steel tusk blades. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I, and, yeah, are these tusk there. blades? Yeah, we have a, an image, which we'll put on com of the tusk blades. Okay, they are pretty dope. They are pretty deadly looking. Over time, archers sat on the elephants' backs to give them a greater line of sight with which to shoot their arrows. Mm-hmm. Not only that, giant crossbows were attached to the elephant backs, uh, the bolts being used against armored troops or other elephants. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Elephant warfare. Right, from elephant to elephant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elephants could carry four men, three archers, and a driver. 
A group of elephants was notably employed by Hannibal during the Second Punic War from 218 to 201 BC. It's got to be the most famous use of war elephants in human history. Hannibal's elephants were African, but not the African elephant we think of today. At his time, and for some centuries after, the African forest elephant, Loxodonta cyclotis, was common from Ethiopia to Morocco. It was smaller than the Indian elephant and just as trainable. Hmm. Right. It was used in armies uh, of a number of nations beside Carthage, including Ptolemaic Egypt, Nubia, Abyssinia, and even Rome. Right, right. On the Rome... Well, once Hannibal came over the mountains and kind of stomped on Rome, I'm guessing the Romans became a lot more interested in right. elephant warfare. On the Rhone River, Hannibal created rafts for the elephants to cross. Mm-hmm. But because of their herding instinct... When one elephant jumped off its raft into the river, the others did too. Oh. <laughs> the elephant swam to the other side of the river, but most of the riders drowned. That's unfortunate. Yeah. The Romans had tried several different, different tactics against elephants. They were extremely difficult to kill, so the main aim was to make them panic and run amok against the Carthaginians. <laughs> right. Do more damage against their handlers yeah. than they do against them. Yeah. They tried to do this by killing their driver. Or they would try to slice their trunks, causing them to turn, allowing spears or javelins to attack their flanks. Or by stabbing them in the soft skin under the tail. Right. That's their weak spot. (laughs) I was going to say, their asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we call the butt. Yeah, The the butthole is your weak spot. I'd say, like an elephant, my butthole is also my weak spot. (laughs) That's why you're always clenching, clenching, clenching. That's right. I never stop. I don't want anything to come in or anything to go out. Whoa. Yeah. Or out. I'm just like, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a no fly system. zone. It's a closed system. Absolutely. I just reabsorb. Gross. That's why yeah. you smell so good. The Romans also discovered that elephants were frightened of the sound of squealing pigs. Therefore, oh. pigs were covered in tar, set alight, and let loose amongst the elephants. Oh, oh my I, God. That is. I wish YouTube existed at that time. Oh, it would, would smell so good. <laughs> oh. Oh, terrible. Bacon. The Carthaginians attempted to counteract this tactic by giving wine to the elephants before battle oh. and stabling them with pigs so that they could get used to the squealing. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. Make uh, Give them some buddy pigs. Don't give them too much wine or they might get flammable, though. Mahouts, the person in charge of controlling the elephant, right. would carry chisel heads and a hammer to sever the spine of any panicking pachyderm. What? Oh, wow. I so mean, if it's causing more damage to your yeah. army, you just yeah. got to put it down. Well, because you're on the back, so yeah. you've got direct access to the spine. Yes. That's yeah. the least part. But a oh, hammer and chisel. Man, oh, man. Yeah. But it, So, okay, you sever its spine. But you're on top of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. But you're on top of it panicking, so I guess it falling down mm. is better than it panicking and ramming you into trees and other yes. elephants I don't know. And we'll stuff. have to test it out. Yeah. Talk and roll. Uh, let's Ooh. do a fundraiser for this. We'll we'll rent an no. elephant that we can kill. <laughs> no. Kevin will ride it. No. We'll, we'll dress I'm, up as pigs and carry flamethrowers. Right. And squeak. No, no. Squirrel. No, you get lit on fire <laughs> in your pig suits. And I will yell from boy, on top of the I elephant. Squeal. I will yell, squeal like a piggy. <laughs> squeal, squeal. I will do it if uh, if it's one of those uh, flame retardant suits that they use in the movies. Then let's do that. And then uh, you're up yeah. on the elephant. Then, I will make it panic. Then I will do it if I'm on a pygmy elephant. I'm just going to get an actual pig and make it up to look like me. Oh, nice. Even better. And set that pig on fire. And then I'm going to eat that pig that looks like me. You wouldn't have to change it very much. Oh. <laughs> give it some blue hair. <laughs> <laughs> you have to like make Torn look more like the pig. 
Just like, oh, pretty close. Yeah, let's just shave Torn, and then they'll look alike. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do have my vestigial tail that's all curly. Yeah. True. Vestigial tail. The problem with using elephants in a war is that in winter, usually for one to two months, bull elephants go into must. Must. What, how do you spell that? M-U-S-T-H. You can also say must. Uh, if you must, you can uh, pronounce it must. Musta? Musta. Yeah. This is a periodic condition in the male elephants characterized by a highly aggressive behavior. Uh, so they will attack anything, even female elephants. Wow. Accompanied, accompanied by a large rise in reproductive hormones. So, wait, what? Okay. Testosterone levels in an elephant yeah. in must uh-huh. can be as much as 60 times greater than in the same elephant at other times. Okay, so it's... 60. But it's, I'm assuming that this is for mating purposes. Yeah. Then why would they attack female elephants? I've gone too far. Probably because probably because in nature they separate themselves. Okay, right? but here we're keeping them all together. Could be right. Could be. But they're supposed to be wanting to hump. Oh, I'm very confused by this elephant situation. Even the most placid elephants become highly violent towards humans and other elephants during must. I can see being violent against other male elephants because right. you know you're protecting your territory and marking your your Maybe women. They just have and a why hard not? time tell. I have a hard time telling male and female elephants apart. <laughs> Uh, male and female humans? Sometimes. Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Just easily confused, Tarn. And in the pop culture, mm-hmm. we have the, in Lord of the Rings. Oh, the Oliphants. Yeah. Mumakil. Oh. Were large creatures resembling elephants often used in battle by the Haradrim. To most cultures, the Mumakil were creatures of great size, as fearsome as dragons, mm-hmm. and to them were ascribed all kinds of strange powers. Oliphants was the more familiar name to the, given to them by hobbits. Good, because that sounded like a strange name. The Mumakil? No, Oliphant. It was like, yeah, okay, I get it. Oliphant. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mumakil resemble elephants, except that they are larger and have yeah. six tusks instead of two. And you can slide down their, their uh, trunk. If like you're an a, elf. you're a skateboarder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In, was that the Two Towers? No, that was in. That was, uh, it was Return of the King Return that he did that. Return of the King, yeah. right. Yeah. Those are big elephants. Oliphants. When they go into must. Ooh, Watch oh. out. And hey, look, there's some non-white people in this movie riding the back of them. <laughs> Finally. Late 17th century saw Sweden working to secure its recently acquired empire from hostile neighbors, which would eventually trigger the Scanian War, mm. 1675 to 1679, and the Great Northern War, 1700 to 1721. Wow. According to legend, that's a 21-year war. That's a hell of a war. According to legend, Swedish King Charles XI was open to military innovation, namely the idea of moose cavalry. Moose cavalry? Okay. I like this. I don't totally hate this. This wasn't a ridiculous scheme. Moose were already used to pull sleighs in the Swedish courier service and were better suited than horses to the northern climate. Okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, moose were commonly used as mounts in Siberia where they were capable of outrunning Cossacks. This irked Tsar Ivan the Terrible so much that he exterminated the Siberian natives and banned moose (laughs) husbandry. Wow. 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 Oh, Ivan the Terrible callback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, shouldn't he have just, like, husbanded Moose himself? Like, to go, oh, if they're the faster, better things, and I want to control this, mine. Yeah, you would Instead, think. he just but kills them all. As we recall from our Ivan the Terrible episode, yeah. he was not entirely rational all mm, the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, allegedly, the Swedes achieved some success and were able to train and ride Moose. However, the Moose's vulnerability to livestock disease, fear of gunfire... Mm. Fear of gunfire is a big problem with your cavalry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And tendency to terrify all horses in the vicinity <laughs> meant the project was discontinued. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, what are these fucking horses with horns on their head? <laughs> yeah. Do I, not like. 
you know what you got to do? You either got to go whole, you got to go 100%, right? You got to make 100% moose cavalry. Right, right. And then you don't have to worry. Then the only terrified horses are on the other side. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but maybe maybe it's easier than it's easier said than done to breed moose in captivity. Um, in modern times, the Soviets experimented with war moose in the 30s, but the animals were unprepared at the outbreak of the Winter War and never saw action. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. unprepared for the winter. No, well, the un- winter un- war. unprepared at the, at the start of the war. Oh. No, unprepared at the outbreak, at the of, the outbreak of the winter war, war, where the Russians invaded Finland before they got into it with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So they were going to take moose against those devilish Finns. I didn't even know there was a winter war. Yeah, they would have, it was like two years before they got into it with, um, with Germany because they had a uh, non-aggression pact with Germany. And that's why when Germany invaded, it was a surprise attack. That's right. Because Stalin was like— Wait, this is aggression. Yeah, this is a, yeah. Hey, hold on, we've got a non-aggression. <laughs> Send ah. some moose after them. I want to thank uh, Dave E, one of our researchers and editors, for helping with this episode. He uh, did a bang-up job. Thanks, Dave. All the way through. Mm-hmm. On October third, nineteen eighteen, a French battalion of five hundred soldiers serving in World War One was trapped by a, trapped in a hillside behind enemy lines, taking on fire from their fellow Frenchmen who were unaware of the battalion's position. Oh, just over a day later, half of the battalion had been killed in the crossfire. Uh, Two attempts to contact the main army failed when German troops quite literally shot and killed the messenger. Uh, a third attempt appeared. Didn't they ever hear about that saying, don't shoot the messenger? <laughs> nope. You're supposed to shoot the other person's mes- uh, the other uh, side's uh, messenger. Right. A third attempt appeared to befall a similar fate when an on-loan American named Cher Ami, carrying a short message, we are along the road perilous. Wait, the American's name was Cher Ami, which yeah. in French means dear friend? That's right. His name. They didn't just... That's not his nickname that the French gave him? Wait, wait. There's payoff later. Okay. Hang on. The message was, we are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sakes, stop it. (laughs) No, for heaven's sakes, arrête. Arrête. Cherami also found himself on the wrong end of a German bullet. The bullet blinded Ami, bloodied his body, and would cost him the use of his left leg. But he survived and traveled 25 miles back to the main army, successfully delivering his message. The message being found hanging from a ligament on his shattered leg. What? His life in the Uh, balance. So he got shot so badly he didn't have pockets anymore. So he stuck it to his shattered leg. His life in the balance. Medics nursed him back to health. They fashioned him a wooden leg. And when he was healthy enough to travel, put him on a boat back to the U.S. where he was personally seen off by General John J. Pershing. Jeremy uh-huh. was, in every sense of the term, given a hero send-off for his sacrifice. Mm-hmm. For any man, this would be quite the honor. But Jeremy was no man. Uh, he was a homing pigeon. Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> Jeremy received the quad de guerre. All of a sudden, my uh, mental image of a busted-up leg with a message hanging on it is not so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An honor given by France and Belgium to military personnel who distinguished themselves by acts of heroism involving combat with enemy forces. Right. He passed away in 1919 from injuries suffered at war. He can be viewed on display. Stuff, oh. Stuffed, of course. All right. At the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Wow. Wow. When they stuffed him, do they like leave all the injuries? So he I hope like so. Kind of a mango. I hope pigeon? so. I would hope so too. That you know, if you're gonna get shot, dude, just take it a step further times. and make him like a cyborg pigeon. Oh, nice! Like actually, with the like, you know, like robot chicken. Yeah, like yeah, they sorry. actually make him look like the robot chicken mascot. There he is. Oh, he's missing he's his leg. He's missing his leg. Yeah, yep. oh, there you go. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. That is uh, an amputee. 
you know, the war amps need to probably paid for this display. During World War II, Project Pigeon, later called Project Orcon for organic control, uh-huh. was American behaviorist B.F. Skinner's attempt to develop a pigeon-guided missile. Oh, The control system involved an array of up to three lenses at the front of the missile using the same unpowered airframe later used for the onboard radar-guided U.S. Navy BAT glide missile. Mm-hmm. Projecting an image of the target to a screen inside while one to three pigeons trained to recognize the target pecked at it. But it's the pecking system, the pecking guidance system. So it's using what? the pigeon's brain as an object recognition computer. I, okay. We have a video. What? A YouTube video of All this right, process. Let's see this. Hold on. So how do you train a pigeon to recognize a target? Every time the target pops up, if it hits the button, it gets food. Okay. That's that's what it is. All yeah. right. For sure. All right. They've fastened a uh, like a metal piece to its beak. It's just a, it's a dot. He's pecking a dot. And it gets food. Oh, if go. he pecks the dot successfully, he gets food. Yeah, he definitely follows the, the tracking target. Mm-hmm. Now, how does this turn into a bomb hitting a specific target? As long as the pecks remained in the center of the screen, the missile would fly straight. But pecks off-center would cause the screen to tilt, which would then, via a connection to the missile's flight controls, cause the missile to change course and slowly change the flight path towards its designated target. Right. The National Defense Research Committee saw the idea to use pigeons in glide bombs right. as very eccentric and impractical, okay. but still contributed 25000 to the research, about $340,000 in today's money. Uh-huh. Skinner, who had some success with the training, complained, Our problem was no one would take us seriously. <laughs> right. The program was canceled in 1944 because the military believed that further prosecution of this project would seriously delay others which in the minds of the division have more immediate promise of combat application. That makes sense. I mean, I think that this can kind of work because you're really using it as, like like I said, an object recognition, right? Which they didn't have the computers that could do that. So they didn't have a thing that could look through a camera and go that way, that way, that way, except for this bird. Right. Now but we have Facebook. Time, but at the same time, it's going to take forever, right, to train mm-hmm. these birds to do each yeah. target they yeah. want to hit. they got to make sure it's a clear day. Yeah. Well, not only that, you just need one pigeon-guided missile to land on a friendly target, and uh, all hell's going to break loose. Yeah, I'm sure, like, this one in this video that we're still watching here is uh, closing in on a ship. It doesn't know if that's a German ship or, a, or like, a <laughs> British ship. Like, Absolutely. It's just like, yep, pointing at the ship, getting my bird seed. Yep. And I watched the 2005 movie Valiant okay. with Ewan McGregor, Ricky Gervais in his second movie. Mm-hmm. John Cleese, Jim Broadbent, and John Cleese, and Tim Curry as the evil Falcon. This Ewan McGregor stars as Valiant, the pigeon. Oh, is this an animated movie? Yeah, this is a oh, okay. CG movie. All right. Mm. Set in 1944, as the Allies prepare for the D-Day invasion, a mm-hmm. pigeon named Valiant wants to contribute to the war effort. With carrier pigeons being decimated by German Falcon von Talon. Oh, <laughs> the understaffed Royal Homing Pigeon Corps accepts pint-sized Valiant and his shady friend Bugsy, Ricky Gervais. Mm-hmm. After surviving training, Valiant is sent on a dangerous assignment to rescue Mercury, John Cleese, a messenger bird taken prisoner by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, oh. this was a 2005 CG movie. You heaved a pretty big sigh right there before you got into it. This That's is not, not like a sign. Toy Story level of CG animation. Right. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Right, but Toy Story was significantly earlier than 2005, so it can't possibly be the year. It's not terrible, but it's not great. The story also, 
not great. Okay. The jokes, not great. Everything about this movie was not like, great. All right. The it's the abil- movie itself, great. Its ability, <laughs> it's, it was amazing. It's Everything a- about it was not great, except for the final product. Ten out of ten. It was it was like a shit sandwich <laughs> that you couldn't stop eating. That's right. No, nom, 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 that nom, where nom. Go- that's where you're going with this. Its ability to keep me awake. Beyond about three fifths of the movie, not great. Not great. Okay. Right, I understand. Okay. Fell were you, asleep. Were you watching it at four o'clock in the morning? No, I don't know what else I can say about this. movie. Well, the and fact that I never heard of this movie, yeah. probably says a lot. And in Black Adder goes forth, episode two, Corporal Punishment. Black mm-hmm. Adder shoots and eats a messenger pigeon belonging to Lord Melchett, landing him in a bit of bother. Uh, well, every single episode of Black Adder <laughs> through all four seasons could end with in a series in the episode description. Lends them in a bit of bother. Yes, it's true. According to the book, Transis Stratagem Chinois, Ooh. monkeys were used in the beginning of the Southern Song Dynasty okay. in a battle between rebels of the Yanzhou province mm. and the Chinese Imperial Army. The monkeys were used as live incendiary devices. Oh, huh? The animals were clothed with straw, dipped in oil, and set on fire. They were then set loose in an enemy's camp, thereby setting the tents on fire and driving the whole camp into chaos. That's interesting. Okay. 
How do you get them from one place to the other? Are they on fire all the, for the whole trip? So, yeah, yeah. The, you're like, like you got them on a in, <laughs> like are you leading it by the hand like a like a pet monkey and you're like come on over to their over to their camp and they're like what are you doing no no hold on I gotta set them on fire go and then you run away no I think he was like asking if you put them in like a cage in the back of a cart and then do you light them on fire and then carry them over or do you simply yeah, what walk point? them over I think you send a ninja. Oh, with okay. a pet monkey, right? Mm-hmm. And they like poof smoke bomb pot style into the enemy camp, <laughs> and then you get your oil dip monkey. And as soon as they walk past the nearest bonfire, conflagration happens. If you got I think a ninja, the way I don't that think works, monkey. I think that works. It doesn't you don't poof and appear, right? You poof and disappear. Oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> you got right. it backwards there. <laughs> it's a reverse. Ninja. You know what? Oh, maybe, and it's all Poong. dressed in white. You can't help but see me. <laughs> Boom! You uh, you dress the monkey up right in his little like uh, flammable outfit, right? And then you go, those guys over there, bananas. <laughs> they got more bananas than you know what to do with. And they're like, well, I'm going over there. And like I said, they just walk into camp. I accept that without question. Franz Helm of Cologne was an artillery master in the service of various German princes and mm. likely served in campaigns against Turkish forces during the mid-16th century. Do you think he invented helmets? Helmut? His treatise circulated widely in manuscript but was not published until 1625. Remarkably, that print edition of his work includes an image of the cat and bird with what looks like a rocket strapped to the animals. And I've got a picture right. here. This will go up on causticsautopodcast.com. Okay. So uh, he's much better drawing birds than cats. The cat, uh, yeah. The cat kind of has a human face. It's got that weird, yeah, that yeah, weird part kinda, of human face, like where they just couldn't couldn't quite replicate an actual cat face. Well, it's sort of semi-human. You draw a cat. I, oh, I could not. I could draw Garfield. <laughs> okay, done. Same diff. Perfect. I will admit that these are better than any of those that I could ever draw. They're mm. still not great. So what does Helm actually say about these explosive animals? Are there rockets involved at all? In the text accompanying the image, images is a section entitled To Set Fire to a Castle or City, which you can't get at otherwise. Okay. It's a good section title. All right. This section details how to use doves and cats loaded with flammable devices to set fire to enemy positions. Mm, okay. On cats, the text paints a grisly picture of attaching lit sacks of incendiaries onto the animals <laughs> to have them return to their homes and set fire to them. Okay. In Mitch Fraz's translation, create a small sack like a fire arrow. Okay. Uh-huh. If you would like to get at a town or castle, seek to obtain a cat from that place right. and bind the sack to the back of the cat. Ignite it, let it glow well, and thereafter let the cat go so it runs to the nearest castle or town. Right. And out of fear, it thinks to hide itself where it ends up in barn hay or straw, and it will be ignited. Okay. The cat came back the, the very next day. The cat came back. The we fucker was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to know if Helm himself ever employed this method of pyrotechnic warfare, but it was strangely... But strangely enough, the idea of using cats and birds in just this way appears in historical texts from many disparate regions of the world. <laughs> you are not the only person who wants to light a cat on strangely fire. Strangely enough, yeah. In a magisterial article on the subject, the Finnish scholar Penti Alto cites examples of incendiary bearing cats and birds from a 3rd century BCE Sanskrit text, oh, wow. the Russian primary chronicle, early Scandinavian sources, and an early modern history of Genghis Khan. God, wow. People have wanted to light cats on fire for thousands of years. Yeah. Maybe this is why cats have such an attitude problem. 
Like, you motherfuckers have been talking about lighting us on fire forever. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> maybe it's the attitude problems is why we keep wanting to set them on fire. Nah. Oh, which came first, the cat on fire or the, the, or the cats of, being jerks? Yeah. Well, because, like, uh, none of these texts have dogs in there, mm. right? Set a dog on fire and he just licks your he licks your hand. <laughs> What's going on? Do you want me to go get some fire? I'll bring some fire back here. <laughs> Uh, the ruling Rosenberg family of the Chesky Krumlov Castle in what is now the Czech Republic claimed descent from the noble Italian Orsini family. Ooh. I've been to Chesky Krumlov. That's where the Bone Cathedral is. Oh, nice. Mm. The name Orsini is derived from the Italian word Orsa, meaning she-bear. So the Rosenbergs adopted bears as shield bearers on their coat of arms. Right. So they were, in essence, shield-bearing she-bears. Shield-bearing she-bears. Uh, taking the pun to a ridiculous fast. level, the Rosenbergs also acquired bears as a boost to the family mythology, although their alleged relationship to the Orsini was probably fraudulent. While the Rosenbergs themselves died out in 1611, their bears remain. The current bear moat was established during the Thirty Years' War. Ooh, bear moats. The first report of bears there is from 1707, and they inhabited the moat continuously in the periods from 1730 to 1790. 1857 to 1837, <laughs> and 1907 to ni- 1935. Bear moats. Throughout these periods, bear numbers were replenished by natural birth, donation, sure. oh. and purchases from zoos. The creatures were presided over by an official bear keeper. Right. Today, four bears remain in the moat, Ooh, although it has been converted into a natural environment. Bear moats. That, that's scary shit. All right. So you come to a castle, and you see a little ditch. You're like, there's no water in that ditch. No crocodiles. We'll just like walk through that ditch and get to the other side, and then bears. I wonder what do you think they maxed out at the number of bears in the moat? Like were they like so many bears? Oh, it's like they were packed. like it was end? like it was like looking at water, but it's furry water. <laughs> furry water, <laughs> yeah. really? Yeah, that is uh, like, oh, just wow, that's a the... lot of feeding that needs to be done. Oh, the bear tide was a real pain. <laughs> keep swelling and falling back. Uh-huh. Well, the interesting part is that they had bears in there from 1730 to 1790, and then there was like a uh, a, a bear break. Oh. From 1790 to 1857. There was oh, 67 okay. oh. years off. No bears. But no bears. Right. And there was 30 years of bears, and then there was 20 years of no bears, and then 28 years of bears. <laughs> hey, bears are expensive, man. You're taking your chances. Maybe, you know, whoever inherited the castle next would just be like, I can't stand the bears. I gotta. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. the bears, bears gotta go. And then somebody else that's came right. in. Hey, what happened like, to the bears? Yeah, it's like, hey, what's this big ditch here for? Oh, that's the old bear moat. Bear, bear moat? <laughs> what? Tell me more about the bear moat. Oh yeah, the last guy in here got rid of the bears that were in there to protect the castle from invasion. Bring me some bears. It's already pre-moated up. Yep. These bears are going to increase this property value. Yeah. They got their giant circus ball down there already they can bounce on. This moat isn't going to bear itself. Shield-bearing shield she-bears. Shield-bearing she-bears. Shield-bearing shield she-bears. During their conquest of Latin America, mm-hmm. Spanish... Bears? Con- Are we talking about bears still? No. Oh, okay. Spanish conquistadors used mastiffs to kill warriors in the Caribbean, Mexico, and Peru. So big boners? Uh, mastiff They just boners. like wave their big boners and then they, the uh, native peoples back down? We're talking about dogs. Ooh. 
Mastiffs, as well as Great Danes, were used in England during the Middle Ages, where their large size was used to scare horses to throw off their riders or to pounce on knights on horseback, disabling them for until their master delivered the final blow. Mm-hmm. Right. In all armies, they were used for detecting mines. They were trained to spot trip wires as well as mines and other booby traps. They were also employed for sentry duty and to spot snipers or hidden enemy forces. Oh. Some dogs also saw use as messengers. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then there is the anti-tank dog. Okay. More recently, canines with explosives strapped to their backs saw use during World War II in the Soviet Army as anti-tank weapons. Anti-tank dogs were taught to carry explosives to tanks, armored vehicles, and other military targets. Uh They were intensively trained by the Soviet and Russian military forces between 1930 and 1996. Yeah, you know why? Because they didn't want them taking the explosives to the wrong place. And used in 1941 to 1942 against German tanks in World War II. Mm -hmm. The original idea was for a dog to carry a bomb strapped to its body and Mm -hmm. reach a specific static target. The dog would then release the bomb by pulling with its teeth a self-releasing belt and return to the operator. Mm -hmm. Oh, so the the dogs were supposed to come back. The bomb could then be detonated either by a timer or remote control, though though the latter was too rare and expensive at the time to be used. Right, Mm -hmm. of course. Continual failures brought about simplification. uh, Okay, (laughs) all right. Dogs can't be trusted to plant mines? I mean, they... Freaking plant bones all over the yard all the time. Not under fire. They plant, uh, you know, uh, dog duty landmines constantly. Oh, yeah. I'm it's a different kind of landmine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they put the landmine rectally, that might work. Oh, yeah. Then they would just yeah. poop it out. Yeah. The bomb was fastened on the dog and detonated upon contact with the target, killing the animal. Oh, okay. Where you know what, though? The problem with implanting them rectally is when they, like, scrape it on the carpet. Yes, yeah, they start rubbing the mine yeah. on the carpet and oh, they'll set yeah. it off. Oh. And then you've got dog anus everywhere. Yep. Whereas in the first program, the dog was trained to locate a specific target. This task was simplified to find any enemy tank. The dog's, right. the dog's butt, after rubbing its butt on the carpet, looks like one of those exploded uh, fake cigars. Oh, yes, of course. Standing there looking super embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> dogs were trained by being kept hungry and their food was placed under tanks. The tanks at, were at first left standing still. Then they had their engines running, which was further combined with sporadic blank shot gunfire and other battle-related distractions. Ah, so that they don't it, – it's not like the uh, yeah. dog from Up situation where he was easily distracted. This routine aimed to teach the dogs to run under the tanks in battlefield situations. Right. Don't it, worry about all the gunfire and explosions. Yeah. There's where you need to be to get, get your, your food. food. Yeah. Each dog was fitted with a 10 to 12 kilogram mine carried in two canvas pouches adjusted individually to each dog. Mm -hmm. The mine had a safety pin, which was removed right before deployment. Each mine carried no markings and was not supposed to be disarmed. A wooden lever extended out of a pouch to about 20 centimeters in height. When the dog dived under the tank, the lever struck the bottom of the tank and detonated the charge. Right. So we have a, a an illustration of how okay. this works All right. as well. So it's, it's kind of seems like it would be a dog with kind of a tiller. Okay. It's, it's kind of got that atomic age, space agey sort of feel. <laughs> kind of. It seems like the kind of thing you'd order out of the back of a comic book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the anti-tank dog? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Because the chassis was the most vulnerable area of these vehicles, it was hoped the explosion would gut the vehicle. Mm-hmm. The first group of anti-tank dogs arrived at the front line at the end of the summer of 1941 and included 30 dogs and 40 trainers. All right. Their deployment revealed... Wait, wait. 30 dogs and 40 trainers? Yeah. Why do more you trainers, more trainers, trainers than, dogs? than dogs? Isn't one trainer enough? You're gonna, I don't know. You, listen, on movie sets, 
When you have a trained dog who yep. needs to do something. He needs to blow up a tank. Needs to go from point A to point B. You need two trainers because you need the one trainer to send the dog, and then you need the other trainer right. to like bring the dog to them. Mm. Otherwise, they will only go part way and then look back at the first trainer to go, what am I supposed to do now? Whereas if you have the one trainer mm. you know, give them initial instruction, the other trainer kind of like come to me, right? Then that's how you complete the circuit. But there's no situation wherein the trainer is <laughs> going to run under the tank right. come on. and coax come the on, dog boy. to come there. It sort of defeats the purpose yeah. of the anti-tank dog Maybe in the first Maybe it's just place. like two trainers per mine. One on each side. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Well, there's one trainer per dog, and then there's ten trainers to cover all of those trainers. Oh, the trainer trainers? Oh. The trainer trainers. Right, got it. You know, they should get rid of the entry-level position in that uh, brigade. Their deployment revealed some serious problems. Oh, how could I have ever seen this coming? In order to save fuel and ammunition, dogs had been trained on tanks which stood still and did not fire their guns. Right. In the field, the dogs refused to dive under moving tanks. Some persistent dogs ran near the tanks, waiting for them to stop, but were shot in the process. Right, yes. No, if you see a dog with a giant bomb strapped to its back... And is running alongside your tank, you'd be wise to shoot mm, that dog. Yeah. Gunfire from the tank scared away many of the dogs. They would run back to the trenches and often detonated the charge upon jumping in, killing Soviet soldiers. Now, Oops. I thought they, I guess they decided that actual gunfire is more distracting than recordings of gunfire. Maybe. So when you play the recording of gunfire, I mean, they didn't have like that 7.1 Dolby back in 1941. Right. yes. So you didn't get that really convincing surround sound that you really needed to put people in the battlefield. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, that three-dimensional soundscape was obviously too much that they could handle. To prevent that, the returning dogs had to be shot, often by their controllers, and this made the trainers unwilling to work with new dogs. I see. I see. Well, wouldn't they have had the same problem if they sent the dog to its death? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's different. It's different when you shoot your own dog instead of having it, instructing it to blow itself up (laughs) under a tank? Hey, man, I just send it that way. It's not my fault. It's got a lever on its back that's going to set up a huge... Oh, yeah, it is my fault. It's totally my fault. Some went so far as to say that the army did not stop with sacrificing people to the war and went on to slaughter dogs, too. Mm-hmm. Those who openly criticized the program were persecuted by special departments. Special departments. Hmm. Out of the first group of 30 dogs, only four managed to detonate their bombs near the German tanks, inflicting an unknown amount of damage. Right. Six exploded upon returning to the Soviet trenches, killing and injuring soldiers. Three dogs were shot by German troops and taken away, despite furious attempts by the Soviets to prevent this, which provided examples of the detonation mechanism to the Germans. Right. A captured German officer later reported that they learned of the anti-tank dog design from the killed animals mm-hmm. and considered the program desperate and inefficient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, would agree. I, I don't have to be a uh, Nazi scientist, and I can <laughs> spot desperate and inefficient over here. A German propaganda campaign sought to discredit the Soviet army, saying that Soviet soldiers refused to fight and send dogs instead. Mm. Oh, or you could. Oh, the propaganda department would have gone crazy with this. You could have like a cartoon with like a dog and a Russian soldier side by side. Which one of these two is willing to fight? Sort of thing. Mm. You know, like. Uh, uh, or even better, you take like a Russian uniform and you put like a dog's face on them, <laughs> right? You know, Russians are dogs. Yep. yep. 
Another serious training mistake was revealed later. The Soviets used their own diesel engine tanks to train uh, the dogs rather than German tracks, which had gasoline engines. Uh, As the dogs relied on their acute sense of smell, the dogs sought out familiar Soviet tanks instead of the strange-smelling German tanks. Oh, God. Altogether, probably less than 50 tanks were disabled by Russian anti-tank dogs, though the Russians claimed the number to be 300. As if you couldn't have seen that coming. If you know that the German tanks are different than Russian tanks, yeah. then don't train the dogs to blow up Russian tanks. I, I agree with you. I, yeah, it's it sounds like Clerical it's people who oversight. don't understand uh. how dogs... But then again, 40s, maybe they nobody thought, oh yeah, sense of smell. Nobody uh. realized the difference until it got pointed out. Well, uh, assuming that they even got 50 Russian t- or German tanks, that probably better than nothing when you're fighting yeah, against yeah, somebody. Depends on how much yeah. money they put into it and yeah. could have yeah. spent on just, you know, some kind of rocket. And of course, in the pulp culture, in the two towers, wargs are as big as horses and extremely powerful. In Tolkien's books, Gandalf explains that the warg is a mockery of the wolf. It is also one of the twisted creatures Saruman admires most. Wargs have thick matted hair and a short mane. Most of them have brown or black fur. This is caused by, li- oh, although a few have a have white fur, this is caused by living in total darkness for years since birth. The goblins have started breeding them in Moria, but Gandalf was smart enough to avoid their dens during the Fellowship's journey. Right. So, warg riders. Mm-hmm. Both handy to ride and kill your opposing army Are with their giant your teeth. Are pop mm-hmm. culture references going to be Lord of the Rings references? Yes. Okay. Or, or Valiant. Wait, there's also the movie that just came out, mm-hmm. Max. Oh, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, so good. I loved no, it. Yeah. No Cars, boom. No, this is the uh, movie about after U.S. Marine Kyle Wincott is killed in Afghanistan, Max, his highly trained service dog, is too traumatized to remain in service. Uh-huh. Back in the U.S., Kyle's family adopts the dog, but teenage brother Justin has problems of his own and doesn't want the animal. However, Max may be Justin's only chance to learn what really happened to his brother. With the help of a dog-savvy friend, Justin and Max begin to bond and set out to unravel the mystery of Kyle's death. That is an odd setup. Okay, the the beginning of the of the the dog lost and the brother adopts it and uh, it's good for both of them. That's great. But then yep. together they unravel the mystery of his brother's death. Is that's a weird twist to me? Like uh, over in Afghanistan. Well, the dog has like PTSD, and there's I guess maybe there's like some other soldiers or something i don't know yeah. i haven't seen the movie it just ah. came out yeah you get a, a dog psychiatrist they do doggy hypnosis therapy oh the yeah dog uh, is out on the couch and has memory recall but then they get into court and you know it's brought into <laughs> question whether or not this is memory recall or whether the hypnotist themselves right. imposing their own You're political right. agenda uh did he say woof or bark yes the stenographer uh-huh In 1862, during the New Mexico campaign of the American Civil War, a Confederate force approached the Ford at Valverde, six miles north of Fort Craig, hoping to cut Union communications between the fort and their headquarters in Santa Fe. About midnight, Union Captain James Creighton tried to blow up a few rebel picket posts by sending mules loaded with barrels of fused gunpowder into the Confederate lines, but the faithful old army mules insisted on wandering back toward the Union camp before (laughs) blowing to bits. Oh, nice. (laughs) There's a lot of errant animal bombs. Yeah, Yeah, you send them out, and guess what? They come back. I mean, at least the, uh, the one guy from the Middle Ages had it right where he said, Procure a cat from that. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Light it on fire so it can go and hide in panic in yeah. a hayloft or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Don't send your mules. 
capture their mules. Although the only casualties were two mules, the explosion stampeded a herd of Confederate beef cattle and horses into the Union's lines, so depriving the Confederate troops of some much-needed provisions and horses. Oh, nice. Oh, mm, free beef. Mm. Okay, so... (laughs) That's working? This is this is a an accidental positive repercussion. Yeah. In 2009, the Taliban strapped an improvised explosive device to a donkey. Of course. The gate guard noticed something suspicious when a group of men let the donkey go a short way away from the camp and then hurried off. Yeah, that's a little suspicious. Wow. Not ninjas. The donkey was stopped with a rifle shot. One soldier set fire to the hay with a flare, provoking a, quote, considerable explosion. Ah, I see. Mm, yeah. Nice. In 2004, a donkey in Ramadi was loaded with explosives and set off towards a U.S.-run checkpoint. It exploded before it was able to injure or kill anyone. Okay. The incident along... Premature explodation. That's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, it happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. The incident, along with a number of similar incidents involving dogs, fueled fears of terrorist practices of using living animals as weapons, a change from an older practice of using the bodies of dead animals to hold explosives. Oh, Live animals, yeah. not dead animals. The use of improvised explosive devices concealed in animals' carcasses was also a common practice amongst among the Iraqi insurgency. Right. right. In the news, uh, this comes from Sarah Zhang of Gizmodo. Fame. Uh-huh. In what is easily one of the stranger twists in the military takeover of Crimea, uh-huh. the Russians have seized control of UK- Ukraine's Navy Dolphin Fleet. That? Huh? The Dolphin's Arm Race... The Dolphin Arms Race. Dolphins don't have arms. They have flippers. <laughs> the yep. Dolphin Flippers Race yep. started all the way back in the 1960s when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were competing in just about every realm of military technology possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Amidst all the secrecy, here is what is known about each side's trained dolphin capabilities. Okay. The American Dolphins. Oh. Half a century ago. Uh, they play football in Florida. And they stink. <laughs> Take that, Florida <laughs> Dolphins. Mm-hmm. Miami Dolphins. Miami Dolphins. Mm-hmm. Half a century ago, the Navy's Marine Mammal Program began a tra- began training a whole menagerie of dolphins, beluga whales, sea lions, and other sea creatures for right. underwater tasks. Okay. Even sharks with military brain implants have been considered. Wow. The latter quite recently. Of course, it was the agile and intelligent dolphin that showed that showed some of the most promise. In Vietnam, the Navy had five dolphins that patrolled the waters around ships, alerting sailors to swimming enemies trying to plant a bomb. Hmm. Trained dolphins are also no stranger to the Persian Gulf. Right. In the 1980s, six dolphins patrolled the harbor in Bahrain, escorting U.S. flagships and Kuwaiti oil tankers. Hmm. The Navy now keeps several dozen dolphins off the coast of San Diego, training them to detect mines. Okay. Hmm. The dolphin arms race has been on longer than I thought. Yeah, I had no idea. Moving to the Soviet slash Russian dolphins. Yep. They're the ones that you put one dolphin inside another dolphin inside another dolphin. Oh, the Russian dolphins. dolphins. In addition to being able to detect mines like their American counterparts, Mm -hmm. Soviet dolphins were allegedly trained to attack divers with harpoons or knives attached to their backs. Oh, hand-to-hand combat. Now, this is like a Bond villain. This is a real Bond villain plot here. This is, uh, you know, they're really living up to their Bond villain accent. They also acted as marine kamikazes carrying mines that would rub up on the keels of enemy vessels. Mm -hmm. These dolphins could even distinguish between the sound of the propeller of foreign submarine and a Soviet one. And of course, Ah. right before they exploded, they yell out, I kill you. I kill you. Oh, I kill you. Mm. I get it now. Uh 
Soviet dolphin trainer training took place in Crimea, so Ukraine inherited the dolphin fleet after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And right there, they had a different saying than the one we know. Instead of Crimea River, it was Crimea Dolphin. Crimea Dolphin. Mm-hmm. With time, the military program was largely disbanded. Many of these dolphins were sold to aquariums around the world. Mm-hmm. In 1999, some of these last dolphins were sold to Iran because their trainers had no money to feed them anymore. Right. No. But in recent years, Ukraine had shown interest in reviving the program, even announcing in 2012 an ambitious plan to train killer dolphins with knives on their heads. <laughs> but that never seems to have gotten off the ground because they were... Somebody just watched the Austin, uh, Powers. Austin Powers movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, somebody just watched it and went... Well, we don't. We can't train sharks and we years. can't afford yeah. lasers. Yeah. So dolphins with knives, knives on their is heads. what we'll yeah. be doing. Precisely. Never seems to have gotten off the ground because they were planning to disband the dolphin program in 2014. That is until... The Russians decided to take over, intending to revitalize it. Right. The work will save scientific, unique scientific developments that were abandoned due to Ukraine's reluctance to finance the research in the field. Mm-hmm. In 2005, the British newspaper The Observer quoted an accident investigator who claimed that three dozen U.S. military dolphins supposedly trained in secret near Lake Pontchartrain had mm-hmm. been washed away by Hurricane Katrina. <gasps> These animals were supposedly capable of identifying... Uh, underwater spies and were carrying a special harness which permitted them to fire toxic darts oh. at anybody trying to sabotage a ship. That's pretty cool. Supposedly. But supposedly. <laughs> how is a toxic dart going to fly through the water? Not particularly it's, well. It's, they have imagine. like, you know, spear guns and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, what is the It'll range close on those range. Yeah, It'll be close range. Okay. All right. You've got to get up close and personal. Mm-hmm. These dolphins, they got to look you right in the eye oh, they'll do that before anyway. they dart you. Uh, it sounds ludicrous, except the Navy has long admitted experimenting to see if dolphins could be used militarily. The idea of them as last lines of defense against underwater terrorists was broached very seriously in the months and years immediately after 9-11. Uh, related to this in pop culture, I watched uh, the 1973 George C. Scott film, The Day of the Dolphin. Oh, whole it's, day. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it felt that long. Let's say twenty four hours. It's it's an hour and forty four minutes. Uh-huh. And uh, the first time I tried to watch it, I got about halfway through and just went nothing. Nothing mm-hmm. has happened. Yeah, it's uh, not a very good movie, which is super surprising. Anyway, the plot is that. Well, hold on. Yeah. They could do a uh, a modern remake. Mm-hmm. Why all you have to do is cast Dolph Lundgren, and then it's the day Dolphin of the Dolph the again, Dolph. and you can make it about whatever you want. It right. doesn't have to be about mammal, like seaborne mammals. Mm-hmm. Dolph in Disney World. Yeah. Oh, it could be a series. Yeah. Oh, it's a. He's going to oh. totally. He's going to travel the world. Dolph in. Yeah, that's right. right. It's a tra- it's, it's a Dolph. travel log. Dolph, we've just given you your your new future show. Dolph yep. in the location that you're dot, traveling. Dot, dot. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, they should all absolutely. be. Uh, there should be a lot of swimming though involved in it. Yep. Anyway, in the movie, uh, marine biologist Jake, played by George C. Scott, and Maggie Terrell, Trish Vanderveer, have for many years been dolph- doing dolphin research in the Florida Keys and have even coached some dolphins to speak primitive English. Mm-hmm. Uh, their main one is named Alpha, and they call him Fa. Uh, and George C. Scott calls himself Pa. So there's this whole thing of Fa, oh. love Pa. It's, there's, <laughs> oh, God. Some of it's very sweet, but it, like a, it's an hour and 44 minutes and you don't really find out what's like the actual bad stuff until an hour and 20 minutes in like the full the full length of what would basically be up to this point now it's actually a movie that's the point where you go 
oh, those are the bad guys, and that's what they're going to do. Right. Like, and then there's 20 more minutes where that happens, and it gets wrapped up, and it's the end. It's, I, I don't understand, because the person who made this movie has done so many good movies. Right. Anyway, uh, two of these dolphins get kidnapped. An investigation proves that the Terrell's financial backers, the Franklin Foundation, have had, a, have had sinister intentions all mm. along. They, the dolphins are to, used to deliver and detonate an explosive beneath the president of the United States of America's yacht. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, everyone was trying to kill the president in the 70s. Huh? Yeah, and they didn't set up the president. They didn't, you never saw the president, really. It was just they were training with this yacht with a flag on the back. Uh, Did it feel like they wrote the script over a weekend? It's based on a book. <laughs> Right. Oh, this, that's right. This is based on a book, like not in, it's not completely uh, directly related, but it's based on a book that exists, and I I don't understand how it turned so out. So what the screenwriter did was Buck Henry, by the way, the graduates Buck Henry. Yeah, they didn't um, uh, obviously the screenwriter didn't really get into uh, adaptations at an early stage, so just started writing word for word. The first, uh, you know, hour and twenty minutes of the book, and then went, oh. "Oh crap! I only got twenty minutes left. I got to squeeze the ending in here somehow." <laughs> he adapted the Graduate, <laughs> like must have been I, from a shorter book. He's also done Catch Twenty Two. Well, Catch Twenty Two is pretty incomprehensible in book and in movie form, that, so. which makes it perfect. Uh-huh. Well, it's time for a reboot then of Day of the Dolphin. I think that's the thing. I think you could do a good Day of the Dolphin movie. To me, it felt like if you edited this down and fixed it a bit and changed some of the dumb stuff. Oh, Paul Sorvino is in this. He plays uh, a government agent at the beginning. You think he's the bad guy, but then it turns out he kind of knows what's going on and is investigating those guys. He's great in this. Uh He's given almost nothing, and I can see him salvage a really good performance uh, I, out of a garbage I'm movie. telling you, the reboot of Day of the Dolphin is just me calling Dolph Lundgren, pitching right. him show yeah. ideas, okay. yes. oh. and having him reply, I'm in. <laughs> I think go. it should be like a Debbie Does Dallas kind of thing, only it's just Dolph in whoever. Oh, you're going with porno. Yes. That is what everybody's watching these Dolph, days. Dolph more and people, Debbie. More people watch porno than they do Dolph Lundgren's movies these days. Oh, lordy. trash compactor with a slug and a weird witch all right to comment on episodes make donations send for links images videos and show notes visit causticsodapodcast.com rate and review us on itunes visit us on facebook tweet us on twitter at caustic podcast email us at info info at Oh, food is here. We weren't good enough. We got buzzed. Okay. Email us at info at caustic-soda-podcast.com. I'm Kim. Jackie. Thanks for listening.
Uh, if uh, you dog, dogs, dogs, dogs. If you're gonna dog, if you dog, if you dog, dog, dog. Brain is exploding right now.